Right, good morning, everyone. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Welcome back to our study of Second Kings. We are in a somewhat technical section of the book. It's at least, it is difficult to keep the names and the places straight. Uh, we've already decided that the timeline is anything but straightforward. We'll see examples of that today as well. We're picking up at chapter 8. We just left off having finished chapter 7, this episode. And, and again, what is the author of the text doing at this point? He's showing us largely the miracles of Elisha. So we have seen this in the case of Elijah, that the history, the chronology as such, fades into the background. The main intent is to show forth the works of Elijah. Here, likewise, with Elisha, both of these men really coming to the forefront of as types of the Messiah, types of the coming Christ. And so we see in their miracles hints and allusions to the miracles of Christ, both in his mystery and in terms of his greater eschatological mysteries, not merely the resurrection of this dead person or that, but the resurrection of all flesh on the last day. That last great miracle of Elisha that we saw in chapter 7 has to do with uh, the victory uh, over the Syrians, where the Lord makes the army of the Syrians hear the sound of the heavenly army. They all flee, and uh, Israel goes, well, of course, we're talking about the northern kingdom, Israel. Israel goes from starving under siege to feasting, and eating the provisions left behind by the Syrians. Of course, there's this unfortunate event of the commander who mocks God's word when Elijah, or when, excuse me, when Elisha prophesies it. And so in the end, uh, he is cursed, and then that curse befalls him at the end of chapter 7. Then in chapter 8, we shift gears, although some of the same figures, including Elisha and Ben-Hadad, continue. So, chapter 8, verse 1, Now Elisha had said to the woman whose son he had restored to life, Arise and depart with your household, and sojourn wherever you can, for the Lord has called for a famine, and it will come upon the land for seven years. So the woman arose and did according to the word of the man of God. She went with her household and sojourned in the land of the Philistines seven years. And at the end of the seven years, when the woman returned from the land of the Philistines, she went to appeal to the king for her house and her land. Now the king was talking with Gehazi, the servant of the man of God. You remember Gehazi from the healing of Naaman the leper. And Gehazi, of course, basically, I don't know what the word is, conned Naaman out of, uh, out of some of his wealth and riches. Um, of course, Elisha wanted to do the miracle without payment as a testimony to God's grace. Gehazi snuck up behind with this scheme to gain a little and, and indeed did. But he also was cursed with, he and his descendants, with the leprosy of Naaman. So then that creates a, a challenge here. Is, is the leprosy that Gehazi received the kind of leprosy that doesn't entirely exclude him from the presence of people? I think the study note in the Lutheran Study Bible might mention that. Um, or is this achronological? And that might also uh, be fitting, that this, this event took place, in fact, before uh, Naaman was healed of his leprosy. We're not certain either one is plausible, either one is fine, it sort of harmonizes the text, but uh, we just, we don't know for certain. 
All right, well, Gehazi shows up, and the king is talking with Gehazi. This is all verse 4. And um, the king was saying, Tell me all the great things that Elisha has done. And while he was telling the king how Elisha had restored the dead to life, behold, the woman whose son he had restored to life appealed to the king for her house and her land. Of course, she had been away for seven years, so now she's saying, I want it back, I've returned. And Gehazi said, My lord, O king, here is the woman, and here is her son whom Elisha restored to life. Quite fortuitous. No doubt, no doubt, God's plan, God's providence at work here. Verse 6, And when the king asked the woman, she told him, So the king appointed an official for her, saying, Restore all that was hers together with all the product, uh, excuse me, produce of the fields from the day that she left the land until now. So yet another huge boon to this, uh, this woman and her son. Well, what do you see? You see that Elisha is well regarded. I mean, even even if there are, in fact, some tensions there, and there are, he is nonetheless well regarded. No one can deny that he is a man of God, even if they don't really like him or like what he has to say from time to time. And interestingly, his influence is even felt in a foreign nation, the nation of Syria and the capital of Damascus. And that's what we're going to see next. Is So the influence of Israel is so great and the influence of Elisha in particular is so great that he even becomes involved in the political affairs, as it were, of another nation. Uh, of course, l- having less to do with Elisha and more to do with God as being Lord of not only Israel, but all nations. In fact, that would have been the way that this text would have originally been read as This is yet one more testament to the fact that God is not merely the deity of this nation. That was the common held belief back in those times, is that each nation or each people has its own god or gods, and then the the people and the gods go to war and we see whose gods are greater, that kind of thing. But a text like this shows ancient people living in in that time and place in that cultural milieu that in fact Yahweh is the ruler of all nations. So we see verse 7 then, uh, now Elisha came to Damascus. Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, was sick. And of course, as the study note points out, Damascus is the Syrian capital. Elisha carried out the task assigned to Elijah. This is all the way back. Remember, um, Elijah going out into the wilderness and under the broom tree and all of this other, and then, and then in the cave, and then the still small voice. And then God promises various things, various remedies. One of those remedies is that Hezael is going to be anointed king of Syria. And so this, uh, this task assigned to Elijah is now being fulfilled by Elisha. So Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, was sick. And when it was told him, the man of God has come here, the king said to Hezael, Take a present with you and go to meet the man of God and inquire of the Lord through him, saying, Shall I recover from this sickness? I mean, very interesting, because even if you don't necessarily have what we would call saving faith, there is at bare minimum here faith on the part of uh, the king of Syria, Ben-Hadad, that Elisha has the ability to tap into Yahweh, And Yahweh is going to know such a thing as this, whether or not he's going to get well. It's pretty impressive. It's pretty incredible. Verse 9, So Hazael went to meet him and took a present with him, all kinds of goods of Damascus, forty camel loads. When he came and stood before him, he said, Your son Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, now son is just like a title of deference there, Your son, Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, has sent me to you, saying, Shall I recover from this sickness? And Elisha said to him, Go, say to him, You shall certainly recover. 
but the Lord has shown me that he shall certainly die. All right, now you have to pay really careful attention to the quotation marks here because the, of course there aren't quotation marks in the original text, but the English editors are telling you what they think is going on here. And they're probably right in this case. So the first set of quotation marks is in verse 10, the double quotation marks, the standard. Go say to him, and then we have a new set of quotation marks. Okay, so this is what Hazael is to say to Ben-Hadad. You shall certainly recover. That's the end of what he's supposed to say to Ben-Hadad. Then Elisha continues to say now only to Hazael, not to be passed on. But the Lord has shown me that he shall certainly die. The meaning here, yes, he's going to recover from his sickness. Tell him he's going to recover from his sickness. Okay, full stop. But, but, and we're going to see what that but entails. <laughs> Verse 11, and he fixed his gaze and stared at him. Now, this is a little bit difficult to tell because it's grammatically ambiguous. But I think it makes the most sense to say, and he, namely Elisha, he was the one previously speaking, Elisha fixed his gaze and stared at Hazael until Hazael was embarrassed. And the man of God wept, and Elisha wept. And Hazael said, Why does my Lord weep? He answered, Because I know the evil that you will do to the people of Israel. You will set on fire their fortresses, and you will kill their young men with the sword, and dash in pieces their little ones, and rip open their pregnant women. All right. So I think in context it makes the most sense then to see Elisha as the one who is fixing his gaze on Ben-Hadad, staring at him until Ben-Hadad's embarrassed. Because Elisha knows what's up, Ben-Hadad doesn't. Or, I'm sorry, Hazael. Elisha knows what's up. Hazael does not. And so Hazael, and then, and then Elisha, ultimately his stare becomes tears. Hazael says, why are you weeping? And then he says, because you're going to do all these things. Verse 13, and Hazael said, what is your servant who is but a dog that he should do this great thing? I mean, again, great here meaning uh, terrible, awesome, whatever. Uh, thing. Elisha answered, the Lord has shown me that you are to be king over Syria. Well, that's enough for Hazael. He hears that word of the Lord and believes it. Verse 14, then he, Hazael, departed from Elisha and came to his master, Ben-Hadad, who said to him, what did Elisha say to you? And he answered, he told me that you would certainly recover. But the next day he took the bedcloth and dipped it in water and spread it over his face till he died. And Hazael became king in his place. All right, so Hazael does indeed become uh, king over Syria and um, does so by murder and then goes on a uh, rather violent and murderous rampage against Israel, as we shall see shortly. And it's very disingenuous when you read, the way you read this, I guess. You know, he says, am I a dog? He acts like he's not thinking about this. Hmm. Am, am I mistaken? Hmm. Because he's saying, oh, you know, who am I, a dog that I should do this? And, and then it says here, the, the next day, so it's almost like you're telling me, oh, it's an afterthought. And I'm saying, no, this is not an afterthought. <laughs> it's hard to know. It's hard to know. I think if you, yeah, I, I see your point. If you read Hazael in continuity, he's not afraid to murder the king. He's going to go do these violent things later. That then this seems like kind of a faux uh, humility. I, I think that's a fair reading. I, and that may be the correct one, I don't know. Your other possibility is that he is sort of humble and subservient, but once he hears that the Lord is, is going to make him king of Syria, 
it's kind of the Cain phenomenon. You know, you grow up and your parents tell you, you're the man of God, you're the guy, you're, you know, you're the best, who's your brother, no one. Um, you know, as soon as, so it may be the case that this humble guy gets a big head all of a sudden, and then either way, it doesn't much matter. Your point's well taken. I'm not sure that we can tell from the text itself which is which, but yeah, Hazael, not a nice guy, really. Okay, now we shift gears in the narrative. I mean, again, I, what, is the, what, what is the point of this? Obviously, there's, there's some factors here that are going to drive the historical narrative along, and, and, but what is the, you know, what really is the point as the, as the author is seeing it? We're, we're seeing Elisha as, in many ways, the face of Yahweh. Um, he is the one who's doing Yahweh's work, who's saying things that only Yahweh could say, who's knowing things that only Yahweh could know. And in that respect, um, we then see him as a type of Christ, because Christ is explicitly the, the face, the icon, the image of the invisible God, the one who knows what he knows, says what he says, etc. And that's, you know, that's such a beautiful thing for us to keep in mind. It's, it's, the fullness of the prophetic office is fulfilled in Christ. So that if you want to know what God thinks or what the Father thinks, you go to the Son. And in seeing the Son and what He says and what He's done for us on the cross, hearing His absolution, hearing His gentleness, hearing Him call all men to Himself, whoever you are, um, that then is, is the face of God, the image of the invisible God. And so we do know, in fact, the heart of God. And we see that even where the rest of the world, even where our experiences or what the media portrays, what the news programs show, everything else, you know, what, whatever we might infer by that rationally or experientially, we can set that aside if it's in conflict with the love of God that is for us in Christ Jesus, revealed to us in Christ Jesus. That's more certain than everything else under the sun. Everything else under the sun can be reconfigured, rebalanced, reinterpreted, understood in a different light, so long as we hold to that one firm anchor of our faith, Christ Jesus our Lord. All right, we then shift gears and yet another place where it, it's kind of a little technical for us reading because different names uh, thrown out. Now, um, we do make a shift because we have largely been talking about what's going on in the north, in what is often called Israel or Samaria. Samaria is also the capital. And now we shift back down to Judah. Of course, we're in the age of the divided kingdom, so Judah, the southern kingdom. Verse 16, in the fifth year of Joram, the son of Ahab. Ahab, bad guy or good guy? Really bad guy. And remember, he's cursed and his son's with him, so you know right off the bat that you know, Joram isn't going to be the greatest. In the fifth year of Joram, the, king of a uh, the son of Ahab, king of Israel, when Jehoshaphat was king of Judah, Jehoram, the son of Josaphat, king of Judah, began to reign. Okay, so in the north... You have Joram, son of Ahab, reigning. And Joram's a bad guy because Ahab's a bad guy. Then in the south, you have uh, Jehoshaphat and then Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat. Hopefully you're tracking with that. All right, so Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 32 years old when he became king, and he reigned eight years in Jerusalem. And he walked in the way of the kings of Israel. Okay, so even though he's a southern king, he walks in the ways of the northern kings. As the house of Ahab had done. For the daughter of Ahab was his wife. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Yet the Lord was not willing to destroy Judah for the sake of David his servant, since he promised to give a lamp to him and to his sons forever. This is an incredible verse. 
That's just an incredible verse. Because this, this is quite literally, not typologically, not metaphorically, symbolically, interpretively, any other. This is just literally about Christ. This is the promise that God made to David, that David's son would reign, and would reign as a lamp, as a light, the light of the people of God, the glory of Israel, also the light of the world. And so here you say, you have God looking down on Judah and saying, look, Judah is... Judah in the south is intermarried with Israel in the north. They're all interrelated with Ahab. Ahab, of course, this false messiah, this antichrist type figure. If a king is an anointed one, um, then, then what, is a, what is a bad king? A bad anointed one. So you have a good messiah, that's what anointed one means, or a bad messiah, a Christ or an antichrist. Ahab is this antichrist. You have this antichrist reigning, tentacles spread throughout north and south. The south is so bad that God says objectively, I ought to destroy it just as I'm going to destroy the north. Um, But I'm not going to. Because why? Because of my promise. You see, here's, here's one of many places we could point to. God does not lie. You know, if we, if we sit back and we recline back in our armchairs and we think like philosophers and we say, can God tell a lie? You know, we might, we might come to the conclusion, well, he has to be able to do anything or else he's not God. So yes, I suppose God could tell a lie, kind of, you know, rationale. But the biblical God is quite different from this. No, he can't because he is in fact truth. He does not lie. It's contrary to who he is. And so we don't have a philosophical God of our own making, of our own imagining. The one true God is a God who cannot lie and does not lie simply because he is truth. There is no sin or deceit within him. In fact, it's the devil who is the liar, the sinner and the deceiver. Okay, so then the Lord has made this promise to David and he will keep that promise no matter what. The Lord was not willing to destroy Judah for the sake of David his servant, since he promised to give a lamp to him and to his sons forever. And I would argue that really properly speaking, that lamp is Christ, the light, the Messiah. So he's not going to destroy Judah, he's not going to destroy the people because this is the people through whom the Messiah is going to come. And of course, in view here is the salvation of Israel um, as a whole, I mean God's people, all 12 tribes. But even beyond that, the salvation of the whole world as Gentiles are engrafted in, as we are engrafted in, become one church and one people of God. Son's not any better, and you see what's going on. I'm thinking that why is the South Judah wanting to negotiate with a loser? I'm thinking he should listen to Joe Olstein then, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean this is this is the great blindness of sin, I think. It's, going down. Why, why, do you, why do you hook up with a sinking ship? I, that's what I'm looking at. That's, I don't understand that. Yeah, if yeah, it's yeah. going down, you get in the lifeboat and say, bye. Right. Well, thank you. And that's what I had kind of paused in, to meditate on. This, you know, this is what I think. It's only in hindsight that we see that it's a sinking ship. And it's only, to put it in, it's only in hindsight that we see Ahab is as wicked as he is and the the marriage between the, the king of Judah and his daughter and, you know, how would they have seen it? Probably as good. Your average Israelite, your average Judahite, not Elisha, not the part of the elect, not the, but your average Israelite, your average Judahite probably would have been like, good. This is uniting the kingdoms. This is ecumenical. This is loving. This is unifying. We're all going to stand as You know, even if we can't stand together as one nation, we're recognizing our deep connections, our interdependence upon one another. You know, and the whole thing's wickedness, of course. I think it just goes to show that how how blinding sin is. And the the take-home for us is that 
while we plead guilty of all those sins of which we know, we also plead guilty of those sins that we do not know. We plead guilty before God of all sins simply because uh, sin has such a blinding effect we can't see when we ourselves have compromised, when we ourselves have, you know, it takes the Lord to enlighten that, enlighten our eyes to be able to see that so that we can repent of it, turn away from it, receive forgiveness, do better, etc. So this is, uh, this is, I think, what rules, the day, what rules us even today is largely pragmatism, you know, what works, and that's what's ruling them too, what works. Okay, well, we have this blatant statement that for the sake of Christ, for the sake of God's promise that he's going to bring the Christ through Judah, through David, Judah will not be destroyed. It's an incredible passage. Verse 20. In his days, now his is uh, Jehoram, who is beginning to reign. So in, I think that that's right. So in Jehoram's days, Edom revolted from the rule of Judah. So Edom was under the rule of Judah, even though it was a foreign nation. But they revolted and set up a king of their own. Verse 21, then Joram passed over to Zer with all his chariots and rose by night, and he and his chariot commanders struck the Edomites who had surrounded him, but his army fled home. So Edom revolted from the rule of Judah to this day, that is to the day in which this text was written, then Libna revolted at the same time. Libna is a city on the edge of the Philistine territory, says the study note southwest of Jerusalem. Later, Sennacherib's army will encamp there. Now the rest of the acts of Joram and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? So Joram slept with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David, and Ahaziah, his son, reigned in his place. So what are we seeing? We're seeing the wickedness of Judah in the south. We've seen the wickedness of Israel in the north. We're seeing the wickedness of Judah in the south, that they deserve to be punished, but God, for the sake of the Messiah, is not going to. Um, nonetheless, their rule and their power, what they have, is unraveling uh, under Joram, um, which I think is short for Jehoram, and such that the Edomites have rebelled, and then Libna, rebelled, a, a nation and a city that were under the rule of Judah have rebelled. So their sort of, their grip is, uh, is relaxing. Enemies are slipping through their fingers. They're losing power, etc. All right, then we learn that Ahaziah, his son, reigns in place, and that's where we pick up in verse 25. In the twelfth year of Joram, the son of Ahab, king of Israel, oh no, I see what I've done. This is what I meant by it being complex. Joram is not, of course, identical to Jehoram, as I think I just said a minute ago. Joram is, the, is referenced back in verse 16 as the son of Ahab. Now we're picking back up. Yeah, I have read and reread this, <laughs> this section so many times that I'm still messing it up. There's too many names, too much back and forth for me. Smooth brain that I am. Um, so in the twelfth year of Joram, the son of Ahab, that's the same Joram we read of in uh, verse 16, king of Israel, Ahaziah, the son of Jehoram, king of Judah, began to reign. All right, so we're still in the south. It's still um, Ahaziah. Pastor? Yeah, please. Uh, the Joram that's in verse 21, though, is Jehoram. Oh, is it? Yeah. So I was right, and now I'm wrong in correcting myself? Yeah. yeah. Okay, thanks. That, so there's two Jorams. At least there's a note in my Bible in, for verse 21. It says it's another spelling for Jehoram. Okay, good. The son of Jehoshaphat. All right. So I'm not losing my mind in the primary sense, just in the secondary sense. Yeah, all right. 
Um, yeah, thank you. So, okay, so then we have, we have uh, two Jorams. We have Joram, son of Ahab, and then Joram, also known as Jehoram. Right. Got it. Thank you. Thank you for the clarification, Barry. Okay, verse 26, this is the son of Jehoram, also then the second Joram. Ahaziah, Ahaziah was 22 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned one year in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Athaliah. She was a granddaughter of Omri, king of Israel. Um, they, uh, that's, a, that's a bad guy, 1 Kings 16. He also walked in the way of the house of Ahab and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, as the house of Ahab had done, for he was son-in-law to the house of Ahab. As see how Ahab over and over again is coming up as the... I mean, I, think, I don't think it's too strong to say the Antichrist, the anti-anointed one, the anti-king. He really factors and looms that large in this text. Verse 28, he went with Joram, the son of Ahab, to make war against Hazael, king of Syria, at Ramoth-Gilead. Now, we just learned about Hazael, king of Syria, and the cruel way that he became king. And the Syrians wounded Joram. Verse 29, And King Joram returned to be healed in Jezreel of the wounds that the Syrians had given him at Ramah when he fought against Hazael, king of Syria. And Ahaziah, the son of Jehoram, king of Judah, went down to see Joram, the son of Ahab, in Jezreel because he was sick. I think I kept all that straight in my mind. Hopefully you did too. Verse 9, or excuse me, chapter 9, verse 1. Then Elisha the prophet called one of the sons of the prophets and said to him, Tie up your garments and take this flask of oil in your hand and go to Ramoth Gilead. And when you arrive, look there for Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, son of Nimshi, and go in and have him rise from among his fellows and lead him to an inner chamber. Then take the flask of oil and pour it on his head and say, Thus says the Lord, I anoint you king over Israel. Then open the door and flee. Do not linger. <laughs> All right. So now you have Elisha by proxy anointing Jehu king of Israel. Verse 4, So the young man, the servant of the prophet, went to Ramoth-Gilead, and when he came, behold, the commanders of the army were in council. And he said, I have a word for you, O commander. And Jehu said, To which of us all? And he said, To you, O commander. So he arose and went into the house, and the young man poured the oil on his head. See, this is the anointing, this is the Christing, and thus why we want to keep in our mind Christ versus Antichrist in these texts. Saying to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anoint you king over the people of the Lord, over Israel. And you shall strike down the house of Ahab your master, so that I may avenge on Jezebel the blood of my servants, the prophets, and the blood of all the servants of the Lord. For the whole house of Ahab shall perish, and I will cut off from Ahab every male, bond or free, in Israel. And I will make the house of Ahab like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Basha, the son of Ahijah. And the dogs shall eat Jezebel in the territory of Jezreel, and none shall bury her. Then he opened the door and fled. <laughs> All right. He was smart, though. I like it that he opened the door and fled. Why did that other prophet do that? Remember with the other one where supposed to eat. He's lingered around. Oh, yeah, 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 that guy. And then, yeah, and then he, get, then the lion ate him and stood there. Yeah, he the needed donkey. to get moving like yes. this guy. Right. 
right. Okay, well, uh, verse 11, when Jehu came out to the servants of his master, they said to him, is all well? Why did this mad fellow come to you? And he said to them, you know the fellow and his talk. And they said, that is not true. Tell us now. And he said, thus and so he spoke to me, saying, thus says the Lord, I anoint you king over Israel. Then in haste, every man of them took his garment and put it under him on the bare steps, and they blew the trumpet and proclaimed, Jehu is king. Interesting, because we have a, a slight allusion to Palm Sunday and the putting of the garments, the makeshift red carpet that takes place. They accept right away. You know, this is the strange mixture of belief and unbelief. You know, what was it? Two seconds earlier, they talked about the prophet as being a mad fellow. Um, you can see that in verse 11. Is all well? Why did this mad fellow come to you? And yet, as soon as he says, thus says the Lord, you're going to be king, they all say, oh, okay. <laughs> now, perhaps they wanted Jehu to be king, and so they didn't really care what the pretense was, um, or they were happy to be part of this. That all may, in fact, be true. But I don't think even that would defeat just the point of the, the cynicism and the mixture of belief and unbelief going on in the higher-ups of Israel at this time. All right, well, we left off, of course, with Joram and Ahaziah um, post-battle. Uh, Joram, I think, nursing his wounds and Ahaziah coming to see him. And now we pick back up in the narrative, or that line of the narrative in verse 14. Thus Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi, conspired against Joram. Now Joram, with all Israel, had been on guard at Ramoth-Gilead against Hazael, king of Syria. But King Joram had returned to be healed in Jezreel of the wounds that the Syrians had given him when he fought with Hazael, king of Syria. So Jehu said, If this is your decision, then let no one slip out of the city to go and tell the news in Jezreel. Then Jehu mounted his chariot and went to Jezreel, for Joram lay there. And Ahaziah, king of Judah, had come down to visit Joram. Now the watchman was standing on the tower in Jezreel, and he saw the company of Jehu as he came and said, I see a company. And Joram said, Take a horseman and send to meet them, and let him say, Is it peace? So a man on horseback went to meet him and said, Thus says the king, Is it peace? And Jehu said, What do you have to do with peace? Turn around and ride behind me. And the watchman reported, saying, The messenger reached them, but he is not coming back. Then he sent out a second horseman, who came to them and said, Thus the king has said, Is it peace? And Jehu answered, What do you have to do with peace? Turn around and ride behind me. Again the watchman reported, He reached them, but he is not coming back. And the driving is like the driving of Jehu, the son of Nimshi, for he drives furiously. <laughs> Apparently he had a little reputation there for how he drives his chariot. I think we get the picture that Jehu was a bit of a force of nature here. He's compelling these messengers to join him with little more than a word. He's driving furiously. He's known for driving furiously, of course. So this is interesting. Verse 21, Joram said, Make ready. And they made ready his chariot. Then Joram, king of Israel, and Ahaziah, king of Judah, set out each in his chariot and went to meet Jehu and met him at the property of Naboth the Jezreelite. Yeah, 
Now, if you look at the study note, this points out just a really juicy detail. Um, anxious for the news of Ramoth Gilead, the kings left the security of the city, this property of Naboth, where they are, highly ironic given that Jezebel, Joram's grandmother, had orchestrated Naboth's death in order to seize his property. So this is one of those like great big moments where the geography and the timeline all line up to this huge, you know, kind of theological climax. Verse 22, and when Joram saw Jehu, he said, is it peace, Jehu? He answered, what peace can there be so long as the whorings and the sorceries of your mother Jezebel are so many? Uh, how's that for a your mom joke? This is, uh, this is quite insulting. So obviously not. Um, verse 23, Then Joram reigned about and fled, saying to Ahaziah, Treachery, O Ahaziah. And Jehu drew his bow with his full strength and shot Joram between the shoulders so that the arrow pierced his heart. And he sank in his chariot. Jehu said to Bidkar, his aide, Take him up and throw him on the plot of ground belonging to Naboth the Jezreelite. For remember, when you and I rode side by side behind Ahab his father, how the Lord made his pronouncement against him. As surely as I saw yesterday the blood of Naboth and the blood of his sons, declares the Lord, I will repay you on this plot of ground. I mean, can you imagine all that's involved in the Lord orchestrating this to take place? This is, again, just a, an absolute testimony to the miraculous nature of this and how one cannot escape God or escape the judgment he pronounces. You can see poetic justice here, too, as long, along with just plain old justice. Now, therefore, take him up and throw him on the plot of ground in accordance with the word of the Lord. So, Jehu, at least so far, very much embodying the wrath and justice of God, bringing out and carrying out the will of God among the wicked. Verse 27, when Ahaziah, the king of Judah, saw this, he fled in the direction of Beth Hagen. And Jehu pursued him and said, shoot him also. And they shot him in the chariot at the ascent of Gur, which is by Ibliam. And he fled to Megiddo and died there. His servants carried him in a chariot to Jerusalem and buried him in his tomb with his fathers in the city of David. In the eleventh year of Joram, the son of Ahab, Ahaziah began to reign over Judah. Okay, so this is a pretty big deal, obviously, because he's just killed the king of the north and the king of the south, Jehu has, uh, both connected with Ahab and certainly a minister of God's justice at this point. I want to check one second and see if there's any note on Megiddo. Of course, this field um, factors somewhat. Let's see. Mm, they make no mention here. Megiddo, of course, is a place where many battles are fought in the Old Testament world and, and becomes an, an, a kind of type, a biblical type, um, so much so that where, where Revelation picks up with the language of Armageddon, it comes from Megiddo, it comes from this plain. Pastor, is verse 29 out of order? It seems he's not rainy anymore, he's dead, right? <laughs> I know, yeah, postscript. I think is yeah. I think Alice had it right. That's how I take it. I don't. Yeah, I don't. I don't know. I don't see. Yeah. So the study note says just that. A postscript repeating in part the summary of Ahaziah's reign given in 825, according to which his accession occurred in the twelfth year. For the different bases of computing the years, see yeah. 
Roman numeral pages. But I mean, to line all this up, and of course, chronologically and everything, very complex. But um, yeah, I think I would think that that's just to be taken as a postscript. Okay, well, more judgment is to come. Verse 30, when Jehu came to Jezreel, Jezebel heard of it. And she painted her eyes and adorned her head and looked out of the window. And as Jehu entered the gate, she said, Is it peace, you Zimri, murderer of your master? Um, you Zimri is proverbial for traitor because more than 50 years earlier, Zimri had assassinated Basha, the third king of Israel. So what would we say? You Benedict Arnold or something like that? Traitor. Is it peace, you Zimri, murderer of your master? And he lifted up his face to the window and said, Who is on my side? Who? Two or three eunuchs looked out at him. He said, Throw her down. So they threw her down. And some of her blood spattered on the wall and on the horses, and they trampled on her. Then he went in and ate and drank. And he said, yeah, she definitely deserved it. Now is not the time to feel bad for Jezreel. I mean, Jezreel's the traitor of all traitors. It's quite ironic she accuses this lesser traitor. I mean, she poisoned all of Israel, and I mean north and south, poisoned Ahab. She in some ways is like, yeah, is like the arch evil queen, even yeah, even worse than Ahab. Ahab at times in the text is get, we're given sympathy. We never get any sympathy for uh, Jezebel. She just seems to be wicked through and through. And she's arrogant because she's painted her eyes and her shorter head. She's acting like she's going out to a costume party. I don't know. I yeah, the painted eyes part. I like this. I figure if you're going to be evil and arrogant, do it right up to your dying <laughs> breath. But it is. Uh, I mean, there's all kinds of, like, I don't know, ironies, terrors, unclean elements about this whole thing. I mean, she's got her eunuchs up there. Her eunuchs are the, you know, the ones who then are, you know, throw her out. It's just, yeah. No, no part of this is great. We're even told that the horses trample her. I mean, so she, yeah, the dogs are going to eat her. So this is like, how many different layers of unclean, how many different layers of curse can you, like, throw upon this whole thing? Yeah. But, as the song goes, she did it her way. She, uh, you know, painted her eyes, adorned her head, and went out as she wanted to. Yeah. And Jehu, you know, he, uh, I don't know. He's a speeder. <laughs> Jehu's the guy, like, when you've just had enough, you're like, kind of want to be Jehu right now. <laughs> it's just time to get down to business. Yeah. He, um, and I like it he's, he goes on quite the tear. He got hungry after doing a lot of killing. Yeah, he's going to just sit down and eat. <laughs> he's going to make himself right at home, isn't he? Yeah. Yeah, he's, he's kind of, I mean, heretofore, he's kind of an amazing figure. And heretofore, a triumphant figure. Uh, a, I mean, honestly, kind of a breath of fresh air. Although, although, anytime you get this kind of like executioner of God motif, it's, you know, it's insofar as it goes. <laughs> okay, well, yeah, we left him feasting. Um, so, try not to read any of the gruesome part again. Yes, verse 30, <laughs> after all, after page after page of her wickedness, maybe we should read it again. Verse 34, then he went in and ate and drank, and he said, See now to this cursed woman and bury her, for she is a king's daughter. But when they went to bury her, they found no more of her than the skull and the feet and the palms of her hands. When they came back and told him, he said, this is the word of the Lord, which he spoke by his servant Elijah the Tishbite. In the territory of Jezreel, the dogs shall eat the flesh of Jezebel. 
and the corpse of Jezebel shall be as dung on the face of the field in the territory of Jezreel, so that no one can say, this is Jezebel. Brutal. Brutal. Yeah, what does it say? That, what's that saying? We have the wheels of justice grind slowly but exceedingly fine or something like that. I think that that's probably a pretty good summary of this. Uh, it took a long time for justice to catch up to uh, Jezebel, but when it does, boy, does it. Okay. Jehu's not done. Chapter 10, verse 1. Now Ahab had 70 sons in Samaria, capital city in the north. So Jehu wrote letters and sent them to Samaria, to the rulers of the city, to the elders and to the guardians of the sons of Ahab, saying, Now then, as soon as this letter comes to you, seeing your master's sons are with you, and there are with you chariots and horses, fortified cities also, and weapons. Select the best and fittest of your master's sons, and set him on his father's throne, and fight for your master's house. Okay, so again, as you, if you just look at the study note, it summarizes this for us. Jehu issued a challenge forcing the guardians to come to arms or conspire against the young men in their care. The guardians of Ahab's 70 sons or grandsons realized that resistance to the conspiracy was useless. Okay, so thus verse 4, but they were exceedingly afraid and said, Behold, the two kings could not stand before him. How then can we stand? So he who was over the palace and he who was over the city together with the elders and the guardians sent to Jehu saying, We are your servants and we will do all that you tell us. We will not make anyone king. Do whatever is good in your eyes. Then he wrote to them a second letter saying, If you are on my side and if you are ready to obey me, take the heads of your master's sons and come to me at Jezreel tomorrow at this time. And he sent the email. Now, now these were letters going back and forth. Now the king's sons, 70 persons, were with the great men of the city who were bringing them up. And as soon as the letter came to them, they took the king's sons and slaughtered them, 70 persons, and put their heads in baskets and sent them to him at Jezreel. When the messengers came and told him they have brought the heads of the king's sons, he said, Lay them in two heaps at the entrance of the gate until the morning. Then in the morning when he went out, he stood and said to all the people, You are innocent. It was I who conspired against my master and killed him. But who struck down all these? Know then that there shall fail, or excuse me, fall to the earth nothing of the word of the Lord, which the Lord spoke concerning the house of Ahab, for the Lord has done what he said by his servant Elijah. So to summarize, um, the Lord has fulfilled the curse that he promised through Elijah that would befall Ahab. This is done in your presence. Um, and, and then likewise, like I think, I think the sense of some of this too is, this isn't personal vengeance or my personal idea that I executed and now we can all be looking for some form of retaliation or something. This was done on behalf of the Lord, um, done publicly, etc. Okay, then uh, verse 11, he's not done yet again. So Jehu struck down all who remained of the house of Ahab in Jezreel all his great men and his close friends and his priests until he left him none remaining. Then he set out and went to Samaria. On the way, when he was at Beth Eked of the shepherds, Jehu met the relatives of Ahaziah king of Judah. 
And he said, Who are you? And they answered, We are the relatives of Ahaziah, and we came down to visit the royal princes and the sons of the queen mother. Which that would be Jezebel, the queen mother. Mm -hmm. He said, Take them alive. And they took them alive and slaughtered them at the pit of Beth Eked, 42 persons, and he spared none of them. And when he departed from there, he met Jehonadab, the son of Rechab, coming to meet him. And he greeted him and said to him, Is your heart true to my heart as mine is to yours? And Jehonadab answered, It is. Jehu said, If it is, give me your hand. So he gave him his hand. And Jehu took him up with him into the chariot. And he said, Come with me and see my zeal for the Lord. So he had him ride in his chariot. And when he came to Samaria, he struck down all who remained to Ahab in Samaria, till he had wiped them out according to the word of the Lord that he spoke to Elijah. Okay, okay. So, It's a little complicated, and there's, and there's certainly more to it than this. But remember Elijah, remember the broom tree, remember the still small voice, remember the Lord then saying, install this person and that person, and there's this person and that person. Okay, all of that has now come to fruition. This is what the Lord was promising him. Elijah too dies having not received the promise, like the Hall of Saints, as it were. But remember how it is said that he must uh, anoint Hazael. Why? Because Hazael is instrumental in wounding the king and getting the two kings together. So that what can happen? Jehu. So that Jehu can be anointed and come and king them, kill them both and execute judgment on the entire house of Ahab Jezebel. Okay, so now we've finally seen precisely what Elijah was lamenting. It's just I, and they've driven me out, and they've got all the power, Ahab and Jezebel, and on and on, and the Lord gives the remedy. Of course, Elijah, I, I said died a minute ago, and that's technically not true, is swept up in the chariot, um, having not received the promise. But now the promise is fulfilled, and now we see why the Lord said all these names and all these people, and this is what's going to happen. And now judgment, in fact, has been meted out on Ahab and um, Jezebel and their whole house. So this is really a remarkable and climactic story, to say the least. But the, po the words that are coming out of Jehu's lips are really providing the interpretive value. What would you say might be the theological theme of this entire section we've been through today? The Lord keeps his promises. Whether his promises are for mercy or judgment, the Lord keeps his promises. Whether it looks like it's going to be possible or impossible, the Lord keeps his promises. Over and over we saw that. We saw that with Elisha, and they're, they're all starving and fighting over each other's children. Who's going to get eaten next? The Lord promises that they'll have free food the next morning. They have it. The Lord promises of old that Judah will be spared. Judah goes to the heights of wickedness. The Lord keeps his promise, spares Judah. The Lord promises Elijah that his enemies, Ahab and Jezebel, their entire house will be destroyed. The Lord keeps his promises. And so over and over we see this, that the Lord is not one who lies. The Lord is one, the one to whom we entrust ourselves. And I think in many respects these things are written for us in this later age because we're, you know, we find ourselves waiting for the Lord and seeing injustice everywhere in the world, everywhere around us. And we're saying, how long, O Lord, has the Lord forgotten us? Has the Lord forgotten his promises? And the answer for a text like this is no. <laughs> it will come, and it will come definitively, and it will leave our jaws hanging open when it does come. It will be done. So we just need, we just need uh, remain in peace and quiet insofar as we are able and trust the Lord. Mm -hmm. Time is mm -hmm. so it could be 40, 50, 100 years later because of God's times that we might not witness like Elijah didn't get to see it, but it will come. 
Yes, yes, that's exactly right. We, so the point is, we may not get to see the temporal execution yeah. of these various things. Yeah. yeah, we may not even see temporal justice. We may pass before the Lord may delay a generation, almost like he did with Elijah. Yeah, and then I, th I think too, though, I think, I think this, you know, on the last day, Ahab and Jezebel and all these people are going to be raised in their bodies, and, and there's going to be a judgment. And there's, then there's going to be a final execution of, ju of judgment, an eternal execution of judgment. You know, and we'd like to hold out hope that even though some of these uh, suffered great temporal consequence and punishment, we'd like to hold out hope that they won't receive that eternal punishment and consequence. Um, we, we, like our Father, desire that you know, no man would die and perish. We desire not the death of the wicked, but that they would turn from their wicked way and live. And so we pray that in terms of everyone's eternal fate, too, despite what they may have suffered temporally because of their sin. So we keep those things in mind, but we do know that the final and most satisfying justice for which we all, in a very godly way, in a very humble and pious way, desire is going to come on the last day when our Lord returns. I am so sorry. I see that we've, we've gotten over time here. I appreciate the letting me know, Barry. Um, until next week, the Lord be with you. Yeah, very much so. Very much, yeah, very much a kind of type and icon of the Judgment Day of, of that, uh, that picture of Christ in Revelation, I think it's 16, where he's coming on the white horse and executing judgment, and there's blood up to the horse's...